Father, we would not presume to connect our knowing about you with truly knowing you. And I pray that tonight as we look at this this text, these words of Christ, this account of John from John chapter 5, that indeed we would see, we would understand by your spirit, and that we would apply and live it out, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we, uh, we're coming back into our John series. Uh, when we left off about three weeks ago, I think it was, I, I preached the first part of John chapter 5, which is the healing of the pool, at the pool of Bethesda, the man who had been lame there for 38 years, amazingly healed by the word of power that, that came from Christ. Uh, he, he heard, he rose, he lived. Uh, off the back of that comes uh, some dispute with the Jewish leaders. And this is what we're coming to as we read from verse 16. This is what God's word says. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. 
there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have weightier than that of John. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form nor does his word dwell in you for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name And you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Amen. This is God's word. Well, everybody loves a courtroom drama, don't they? Yes, maybe. Okay. Some of us love a court, love the courtroom drama, whether it's Kavanaugh QC or Rumpole of the Bailey. Who remembers that? Or John Grisham books, or Judge Judy on the TV. There's something almost gripping about these courtroom dramas. We think as we watch, you know. Okay, listen in closely. What's the charge here? What's the evidence? How is the evidence presented? Is the person guilty? Is the person innocent? How will the prosecution fare? What's the defense? What is going to be the thing that turns this around so that justice is done? I think everybody loves a courtroom drama. I mention that because I think in John 5, we have one of many courtroom dramas in the Gospel of John. Uh, and, and I believe that this scene before us today is no less dramatic. In fact, it's even more dramatic. You could say that as you come to John chapter 5, verse 16 and following, that, that, that court is in session. And the prosecution, that is the, the Jewish leaders, have pressed charges against Jesus on account of his work in healing the man and giving him instruction to carry his mat on the Sabbath day, and the second charge on account of his claims to be God. That's quite a claim for a flesh and blood man to make, 
to walk this earth and to say, I, I, I am God. That's remarkable and quite a claim to make. All of this is happening, escalating, as I say, after this healing of the man by the pool at Bethesda. And what I want to do for us is just, in a sense, walk through this court session. Look with me, first of all, at verse 16, where we we can look at the two charges that are offered by the prosecution, by the Jewish leaders. You're claiming equality with God is essentially their their charge. Number one, Sabbath breaker, Jesus. You're breaking the law. You're, You're telling this man to pick up his mat and carry his mat. Your healing is a work on the Sabbath. You're instructing the man as a work on the Sabbath. The man carrying his mat on the Sabbath is a work on the Sabbath. You've three counts of Sabbath breaking right there. Not only did you breach the Sabbath twice, but that you made another man breach the Sabbath. So they're displeased with that. Interestingly, as you see from the text, Jesus doesn't argue with them. He is at work on the Sabbath. He is at work. But he said, as he says, my father is working until now and I am working. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that in reference to the Sabbath, remember God as he creates, creates uh, everything in six days and then rests. So the Father, Son, Spirit, uh, amazingly involved in this work of creation, take a step back to enjoy what has been made. But we do remember, of course, that, that part of the, 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 the early parts of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, we see sin comes into the world. And I think what is referenced here is that the Father and the Son are then at work to reverse what has entered into the world as a result of the fall, as a result of sin coming into the world. So that's the work that Jesus is doing, and rightfully so. But we see he refers to God as my father. And verse 18 says, for this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God making himself equal with God on rare occasions Jews might have addressed God as our father and done so in a collective sense but Jesus here speaking of God so personally and yes intimately and was deemed by them as being nothing but irreverent and deemed by them clearly as being something that is sinful and as a result in verse 18 The prosecution are pursuing the death penalty uh, as the punishment for for this sin. They they got what Jesus was claiming by his response to them and indeed by his actions and by his works. That he is making himself equal with God. And from looking at the the Old Testament, you can actually understand a little bit about why they might be incredulous about this. That there is a, a flesh and bones man who is walking around claiming to be God. In Isaiah 40, we have a very, very clear picture of the sovereignty of God, but also of God being one who is incompatible and without equal. And then, of course, in Ezekiel 29 or Daniel chapter 4, you have those who are flesh and bones, men who claim to be, who themselves claim to be God, like Pharaoh, like Nebuchadnezzar, and then being subject to God's severe judgment for quite clearly overstepping 
the mark in terms of their claims. So you can understand why the Jewish leaders might be a little bit incredulous. They, don't, they get what Jesus is claiming, but they don't quite see that he's actually telling the truth. Therefore, their incredulity is evident and they seek to kill him. So that's, that's the prosecution's charge, if you like. This man is blaspheming. He is claiming to be God. But verses 19 to 30 give us the, the, the defense Jesus gives them his answer, and he begins as any defendant would give his answer, I tell you the truth. In other words, what I say is no lie. Uh, And as he speaks here, he is certainly committing himself to the record so that what he says is nothing but truth. And he proceeds then, we see, to actually defend his initial claim to divinity, to equality with God. And although there are, there are so many things that I would love to pick out of John chapter 5, we, we're going to uh, major just now on five things, the clearest five things which reinforce what Jesus is saying. Five prerogatives granted only to God, okay, that Jesus actually claims are his. Uh, number one in verse 19, the son does what the father does. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Now, that's remarkable. I mean, that's absolutely unique. I mean, who among men can say, whatever God does, I will do also? Who can say that? Who can say that they can do what God does? But because... The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is by his very nature God. He does the same things as the Father. Jesus exercises divine prerogative in what he does, in his very activity. The second thing, verse 20, the Son knows what the Father knows. Supreme knowledge, friends, is the privilege of God alone. In Job 28, 24, we read, He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. His seeing is knowing. And here Jesus says in verse 20, the father loves his son and shows him all he does. There's a a glance in there into the, the, the depth and the connection of the relationship. It's one that's founded on love, reciprocal love in the Godhead. And we are we are dipping the toe here in the mysteries of the glorious trinity. Uh, it's, it's not easy, but bear with me. Let's press on. The father loves the son, shows him all he does. All he, uh, yeah, he shows him all he does, and that's remarkable. Jesus exercising divine prerogative in what he knows. The father in love is revealing constantly to Jesus as if he knows everything that the Father is doing as Jesus walks through his life. In verses uh, 21, 25, and 28, we also see the third thing, that the Son gives life just as the Father gives life. The Old Testament tells us again that, that the giving of life is again a unique prerogative of God. There's only God who can do that. Uh, it is only he who breathes life into people physically, like you see in Genesis 2. 
and spiritually, like you see in Ezekiel 7 with dry bones and what that represents. And what's more, it is only God, the Father, who raises people from the dead and gives them life. You see that in various occasions, in Deuteronomy 32 and in 1 Samuel 2. It's divine prerogative of God to give life. But here Jesus claims for himself that right and privilege which belongs only to God. Verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life. The Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Verse 25, I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of who? The Son of God. And those who hear will live. And verse 28, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his, whose voice? The Son's voice. And come out, those who have done good, to rise, to live, those who have done evil, to be condemned. When you take Jesus' words there in those three verses, and take them against the backdrop of those Old Testament verses I just mentioned a few minutes ago, we are actually seeing that Jesus is claiming to have the very same rights and privileges as God in the giving of life. The fourth thing, the Father is pleased to entrust judgment also to the Son. In verses 22 and 27 we see this. And again, the backdrop of the Old Testament, the Jews here, the prosecution, if you like, they understand completely that the judgment of the world is the exclusive right of God and everyone is accountable to him as the creator but here we see the father has entrusted all judgment to the son which means everyone is accountable to the son to Jesus Christ and it is because the son is the son of man well what does that mean well, that's where we were helped from Andy's reading from the start of our service from Daniel chapter 7. It means that the, the person spoken of in Daniel 7, the one to whom God Almighty gives authority, glory, sovereign power, the one who is to be worshipped because his dominion is everlasting and will not pass away, sounds like God's dominion, doesn't it? Is Jesus. It's <laughs> Jesus. That's what Jesus is rightfully claiming for himself. He's exercising the divine prerogative here, even in judgment, in terms of who's saved and who is condemned. And fifthly, the Son is to be honored just as the Father is honored. God is on record again in the Old Testament of saying, I am the Lord, there is no other, I will not give my glory to another. But what is he saying here? What do we have here? Jesus saying that the Father wants everyone to honor and to glorify the Son just as they honor and glorify him, the Father. Look at verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So here, even we see this fifth point of Jesus exercising divine prerogative in receiving honor and glory and praise that is reserved, reserved for God alone. 
This is Jesus' fivefold testimony of himself. I think there are, there, are, there are more points, there are more claims to divinity in there that we could have excavated. But even just taking those five is quite incredible. Flesh and bones, man making that fivefold claim? It's Jesus' own testimony. That's his testimony about himself, that's his defense. Now let's be fair, let's, let's think about this. If some guy arrives on the scene and starts claiming the same rights and privileges of God, people are bound to be what? Skeptical, aren't they? We might be well inclined to think, well, here's another Charles Manson, <laughs> a manipulative cult leader. Or sensitively, here is another poor man who is mentally unwell. Or here's a man who is just deluded or here's another Caesar ascribing to himself divinity without showing any evidence of godness whatsoever and if, if the testimony of Jesus then stood alone it might be difficult to accept Jesus himself says so in verse 31 if I testify about myself my testimony is not valid in other words, his own claims are illegitimate if there's no one to actually verify them. And Jesus, of course, understood that in the Old Testament. It said in Deuteronomy 17.6 that a minimum of two witnesses was needed to establish the truthfulness of one's claims and of one's statement. He needs a witness. He needs a witness. And in verses 31 to 40, we see four witnesses enter the witness stand to testify to these great truths of Jesus Christ. And essentially, there are four witnesses here, although they, they aggregate really into one amplified testimony from God the Father. So you could take it that the two, the two witnesses on this occasion are God the Son and God the Father. I think we can see that in verse 31 if I testify about myself my testimony is not valid sorry verse 32 there is another who testifies in my favor and I know that his testimony about me is valid it immediately goes on to talk about John the Baptist I don't think it's John the Baptist he's referring to I think he's talking about God the Father and the four witnesses that he presents now are essentially the work of God the Father in honoring and accrediting the Son okay so who are the four witnesses that take the stand to declare that, yes, Jesus is equal with God. Well, John the baptizer. John is one who has said, I baptize you with water. One more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork, there's judgment, is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's from Luke 3. And what is John's testimony that we have already seen from John's, uh, from John's gospel? As Jesus appears there in John chapter 1, behold, look, see, the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world it's John the Baptist's testimony who's next in the witness stand well the works of Jesus look at verse 36 I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the father has given me to finish 
I believe that's reference to his death and resurrection. It's the full completion of that saving work that he has been sent to do. And indeed, as he continues, and which I am doing. So even the, the, the I suppose, the raising of this man from his, from his chronic illness of 38 years lying by this pool of Bethesda with his hope and superstitious things. That's the kind of work. And the cross is going to be the kind of work that will testify that the Father has sent him. And the resurrection from the dead will be the kind of work that the Father will use to testify that he indeed has sent him. All of these works of Jesus, whether it's his activity, whether it's his death and resurrection, even whether it's his, the words that he proclaims and the gospel that he preaches, they have the fingerprints of God's hand all over them. And Jesus' words have, as I say, just have such particular force on this occasion, giving their context. Jesus is saying this right off the back of healing this man by the pool of Bethesda. Maybe the guy's still standing there holding his mat. I I like to think of that being the case. Before the very eyes of the Jews, there is this evidence. There was a witness, another witness, to the true testimony of Jesus' divine power. Is that enough to convince the prosecution or indeed you, the jury? Third witness takes a stand. The father himself? Verse 37. And the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. Well, that's quite a bold statement, Jesus. But again, think back to his baptism. What do we see on that occasion? That is, Jesus comes out of the water. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. The Father's voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And again, even on that Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is, is, is changed in, in light. That sounds bizarre. You need to go to Luke chapter 9 to see what that looks like. The voice again comes from heaven. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. There's the testimony of the father. And there's a fourth witness takes a stand. The scriptures themselves. Verse 39, Jesus says, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you have eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. So Jesus is basically saying that every page of the scriptures that these guys read and learned and memorized and studied and apparently loved, and every page you were testifying about him. And it's true. And the great irony is indeed that, that these people that he addresses are true students of the Bible. They know it well. But sadly, though they might have had some surface reverence for the Bible, the truth of the matter is they missed the testimony that scriptures gave. They missed the one to whom the scriptures pointed. They missed the one whom the scriptures testified about. To the extent that even in the very presence of the one the scriptures bear witness to, the one who could indeed help them uh, give them eternal life they're, they're antagonistic even to the point of putting him 
to death. Let me ask you this. What are you? In relation to this claim of Jesus to be divine, to be God in the flesh. Are you like the religious leaders, antagonistic? Are you dubious? What do you think about Christ's claims? Even that fivefold claim or the fourfold witness that has just been offered by the Father through those four means. I wonder where you're at. I wonder if you realize that the truths as they have been presented so plainly from Scripture tonight, that they remove any consideration of Jesus as a hero of religion alongside Muhammad, Buddha, or whoever you want to add to that religious lineup. None of these ever claimed to be God. And no other religion so honors Christ in the ways in which John 5 requires. And do you realize that these truths remove any possibility of us ever considering Jesus as simply as a good man or a a good moral teacher? It's C.S. Lewis, of course, that famously said, I would try here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing about, that people often say about him. To say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Well, that is one thing we must not say, Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God. Or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. John 5 says, Amen to Lewis. Lewis better says, Amen to John 5. He has not left that option open to us. So whether you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, and that was what you believed... May we beg to differ tonight in terms of what the scripture says and let Jesus align your thinking with what is true about his testimony and his claims. He's encouraging you to make a judgment on him, you see. And if we're here tonight at Charlotte Chapel and this gospel message is in our hearts and we love it, And it's in our mouths as we seek to share it as best we can. How often do we hear these kind of objections to the Christian faith thrown at us? Take them to John 5. If the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on your door again, take them to John 5. They'll be glad to go. But you take them. You take them and you show them. And I've only pointed out five of the claims. There are more. 
So Jesus making these claims. And as the witnesses leave the witness stand, what will you believe about him? Will you reject him as a foolish or evil man or will you honor him as the God of heaven by crying out for his mercy and the life that he offers? Because in summing up, the defendant, Jesus Christ, is innocent. Yes, he has said that he, he, is, he is equal with God. But it's not blasphemy when he is telling the truth. He is not wrongfully claiming equality with God. He is rightfully asserting his divinity and claiming equality with God. And the witnesses testify that he is telling the truth. He is one with the Father. He is God in the flesh. And he must, he must be worshipped and praised and honoured and glorified. As a result of this whole courtroom scene, the opponents of Jesus are absolutely inexcusable in their rejection of him. They've not been kept in the dark in this. John the Baptist has said, behold the Lamb of God. The works have said, Jesus is a promised Messiah. The Father has said, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The scriptures have said, we have made it known. And yet their antagonism persists. And their determination to carry out injustice persists. But hey, we know God even has his hand divinely on that. As we will see, even in the courtroom of Pilate, you would have no authority were it not given you from above, Jesus says to him. Or in Gethsemane, do you think I cannot call legions of angels right now and put an end to this? Love John's truthful, bold presentation to us of Christ, our God. Courtroom dramas are certainly exciting, gripping, sometimes shocking at what, what the verdict is. But I wonder if you've ever seen a prosecution end up, a courtroom drama where the prosecution ends up in the dock and where the defendant turns prosecutor. Because <laughs> this is what we often see in, in John's gospel. We have the prosecution saying, you're calling God your father. You are claiming equality with God. Jesus over here as a defendant makes his very humble defense. He could have just went, shush. He could have. But he didn't. He offered a humble defense, testified to his divinity, and then turns the whole situation around. So that the ones who are doing, who were doing the judging are now the ones who are judged. And friends, he does the very same with us. We often come to these texts. We sit in judgment over who Jesus is. But he, in essence, turns it around so that we are the ones facing judgment. One last question. Why? Why were... Why did they not believe, these religious leaders, these Jews? Why did they not believe? 
And here Jesus presents to us something of the countercharge in verses 41 to 47. Quite clearly, he just says, you do, not, you do not love God. You love yourself. Verse 41, I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. In other words, you do not love God, you love yourself. If, I've, if I had sought man's praise, Jesus was saying, in other words, like you do, <laughs> I would be a very different Messiah. And maybe they would probably even like him. But Jesus has refused to conform to the expectation of this misguided people. And he has preferred perfect obedience to the Father he loves and the one to whom he himself witnesses. And when Jesus says things like that to the Jewish leaders at that time, even saying to them earlier, you do, not, you do not know God, you do not love God, the scriptures do not dwell in you. That's like a stab in the heart for these people. I mean, that would have rocked them significantly. But I believe Jesus' words strike us in the very same way because when it comes to a person's rejection of Jesus as Lord and God, there might be a whole load of peripheral ideas or, or thoughts that are rooted to that rejection or that unbelief. But our problem is fundamentally the same. We do not love God. We love ourselves. We do not serve God. We serve ourselves. We do not make sacrifices for him. We make sacrifices for ourselves. We enjoy self-satisfaction. For the Jewish leaders on this occasion, their, their pride was in their religion. They loved the law of Moses. Almost because by keeping the law of Moses and by seemingly doing so well in keeping the letter of the law, it was almost as if they were looking to present this kind of glorious golden CV before God saying, ha, now you must welcome me and now you must accept me. Can you imagine what it was like for them to hear Jesus already saying, God the Father has given me authority to judge. And Jesus turned around saying, actually, I don't even need to judge you. Moses is your accuser. Okay, I maybe feel the impact of that a bit more than you guys. But you can feel that. That is a, that is a weighty thing to say. That, that, that is like a, a punch in the gut for these guys in terms of their faith. That's huge. Your failure to receive me is a failure to see me in the scriptures. And your failure to receive me is more than an intellectual oversight. You understand it's a heart issue. Their denial. And quite often, yes, in fact, always the denial that is offered by those who refuse to come to Jesus in faith and repentance and who reject him, it betrays a willful ignorance there is no innocence. There is only guilt. Because they do not love God. They only love themselves. But listen. This passage does not end. and does not leave us thinking on that judgment and that rejection. There is, there is a, a, a central point that we need to revise and look over. It's in verse 24. I tell you the truth. Here's the promise 
of life that is still extended to us and held out to us today. Whoever, 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 not just someone who can measure up to some certain standard, whoever hears, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, past tense, eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life still. Today could be the point of turnaround for you. Where rejection of Christ moves to acceptance. Maybe God has spoken to you tonight, opening your heart by his grace and by the Holy Spirit. Not through anything I have done, but simply through an understanding of what this text says. Impressing upon your heart the reality of the the claims of Christ's divinity, his oneness with the Father, his great work that he has been sent to do by the Father, you can know eternal life. How is this possible? How can eternal life be ours in this way? How is it possible that we can face the prospect of life and not be condemned? It is because Jesus himself has become that judgment for us. And that when we are united to him through faith, through sincere belief, his death becomes our death and his crucifixion, our crucifixion, his curse on the cross, our curse on the cross, and his resurrection is our resurrection. And we can know even now, tonight, that we have already passed from death to life. This is glorious news. Glorious news of a remarkable turnaround and an instantaneous turnaround at a point of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Let me challenge you, if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, to think that through seriously. John 5 has enormous significance for you. whether you like it or not really because if he really is the judge our response to his word has enormous significance these words constitute a call to hear Christ and to believe in his name and I pray that tonight you will confess your sin and do just that in prayer to him Though I am conscious that tonight I speak to those who are largely believers. Brothers and sisters, just wallow in the depths of John 5. Dig around in it this week. Be as confused as I have been this past week. But may you be led to worship as I have been led to worship this week at such immense truths laid out for us so graciously granted to us to understand by the Holy Spirit let these great truths concerning Christ the King our God and our Saviour so be absorbed into our hearts and let us be compelled to share this gospel with those who currently stand condemned let's pray together
Father, we thank you for your great love, for sending your Son, Jesus, to redeem us and to wash us by his blood. And thank you that by your Spirit you have opened our blinded eyes to behold him in his glory and to bring honor to him by our faith and by the praise of our lips. And we thank you, Father, that you, as we do that, give us to Jesus who keeps us and that we are loved by him as our good shepherd and that you, by your spirit, grant us increasing faith to live for you and to know that we are truly one with you amazingly so graciously united to you in Christ Heavenly Father beautiful Son Spirit of life and truth thank you for bringing sinners like us to come to you we pray in the name of our God and King Jesus. Amen.